It is uh, 1.35 on a Wednesday, and that means uh, playing politics with the Star Tribune editorial board. Scott Gillespie and John Rash are here. Good to see you guys. Uh, Scott, I'll start with you. And I'll say on my show yesterday in the first two segments, I, I eviscerated Donald Trump for using the term lynching. I thought it was disgusting. I thought it was repugnant. And then as the day moved along, we found out that a number of Republicans, including Joe Biden, Jerry Nadler and others during the impeachment hearing of William Jefferson Clinton also used the term lynching. To me, I'm going to be consistent. That also is uncalled for and insulting. Those individuals have not dabbled as much as Donald Trump with racial issues. Those individuals didn't question where a president was born. But this is a part of the process that is allowed within the Constitution. And it's not a coup because we hear Trump defenders calling this a coup. There were people in the 90s or Democrats who called it a a coup. So in my view, if I'm going to call out the Republicans and call out Donald Trump, I got to be accurate here and call out Democrats who used a word that just connotes something evil and disgusting in this country's history. Right. It was wrong when Joe Biden used it in 1998 in the context of Bill Clinton's impeachment. It's wrong now. It's an example of how our politics doesn't get better. It gets more coarse. Yeah. And the president has added to that, I think, at a, at a level that we haven't seen before. And it's part of his playbook. Uh, gets him attention, gets him noticed. And happened to attend the rally myself uh, here in, in Minneapolis and listening for 102 minutes. It's remarkable how often he hits notes similar to that. Uh, John, I'll just add one other thing, and then you chime in. The president's tweet about 40 minutes ago. The never-Trump Republicans, though on respirators with not many left, are certainly in ways worse and more dangerous in a country than the do-nothing Democrats. Watch out for them and wait for it. This is from the president. They are human scum. That's the president of the United States on Twitter 45 minutes ago. Can you just hit, hit your mic there? There we go. Oh, you know what? That mic, for some reason. There we go. Try this one. Yes, there we go. I was saying, sadly, that is not atypical for presidential rhetoric over the last few years. Yep. But still, I think by any kind of standard, certainly historic, is deeply disappointing, regardless of where anyone stands in terms of politics. And I concur with my colleague Scott in terms of the coarsening of our culture and our language and certainly our politics. And you mentioned the overuse of the term lynching. You also briefly mentioned the word coup. And for those who actually follow when a coup transpires, it's an extraordinarily violent overthrow of a government. That's certainly something we don't have here. And indeed, we have the constitutional process of impeachment to be used to avoid those types of events that sadly happen in other parts of the world. And while this word certainly hasn't entered into the latest lexicon, in the same way that people throw the term Holocaust around yes. extraordinarily irresponsibly when that's a singular event and should not be conflated with anything else that's happening in, in terms of any other aspect of the world. You certainly can refer to a genocide when the terms are appropriate, but I think that it would behoove everyone in terms of citizens, senators, representatives, and certainly the president of the United States to be more careful with their language. 
Scott, yesterday, as the uh, testimony continues, Ambassador Billy Taylor spoke to folks who are part of this inquiry. By the way, his image is being uh, besmirched over the 24 hours. Mm -hmm. This is a man who has 50 years of public service on his resume, many of those years under Republicans. So the idea that this is just a, a lefty who's out to get the president is just factually not accurate. And according just to his opening statement, let's put aside hearsay. Let's put aside what what he may have said under testimony. But his opening statement lays out something that seems very clear to a direct quid pro quo. All the folks who knew about it here, what the Ukrainians knew about it, how vital was yesterday in where we're going? I think it was a very important day one will look back on. Uh, he laid out in great detail, as you, you alluded to, Chad, uh, the quid pro quo, unofficial and official channels of diplomacy, how uh, clearly he believed Ukraine had been told and to pay up before any military aid would be uh, given by the United States. He s- described how Ukrainians would die at the hands of Russian troops without that military aid. He talked uh, in detail about how Bolton objected to the change in policy. Pompeo stayed mute. And and then he also described the secrecy surrounding some of the key uh, parts of the uh, the story as it unfolded and how he and, and others who should have been in those loops were uh, closed off yep. from them. John, you know Republicans are mad about this process, right? So today... Republicans led by Matt Gates disrupted a closed door deposition with the Defense Department official who was scheduled to answer questions. Um, you had a half dozen or so or even more Republicans going to a, a private area and trying to storm their way into it. This is a publicity stunt, but they honestly believe that they should be included in this and that they are not. Democrats will say that they're in some of these sit-downs, that there are Republicans there, but in others, they're handling this like a grand jury uh, process and that the White House shouldn't be there, that once an indictment, so to speak, so, so to speak takes place, they'll get that chance. Um, who's right about this? Because uh, Republicans will also say that during the Clinton impeachment process that Democrats did have more access than Republicans have right now. There are Republicans represented if they're on the relevant committees and they can and are asking questions. One of the reasons that Representative Schiff has said that they're doing it this way is that so the witnesses don't corroborate their stories in the same way that it's an investigation. And I think any time you storm a secure room, start bringing in cell phones where you're not supposed to have any kind of communication devices because of the sensitivity of the issues that are addressed there and the matter that is distributed within the room, that that's highly inappropriate, and it's just more breakdown of our civil order on a capital that's supposed to set an example, not just for the country, of course, but for the world in terms of how a representative democracy is supposed to work. Certainly, these witnesses will eventually testify publicly, and indeed, the Republicans want that, according to this protest that happened today. The Democrats clearly want that as well, especially if the testimony is as damning as it was yesterday with the ambassador to Ukraine and what he had to say. And very quickly on that issue, and Scott 
certainly reference this as well. I think that among all the aspects of his extraordinary statement that he had yesterday was the fact that this is a military issue mm-hmm. and that by withholding this aid to Ukraine, it weakened their ability to respond to the incursion in eastern Ukraine by Russian-backed separatists and, according to many reports, Russians themselves. 13,000 Ukrainians have died in this conflict. They illegally cleaved Crimea. This is a military crisis, and there was a time when the Republican Party could proudly show how they stood up against communism, the Soviet Union, and certainly were at the vanguard of reforming a new Russia toward an initial democratic future under President George H.W. Bush, as an example. And the idea that they would have such a public protest to defend a president who's abrogating the Ukrainians' ability to defend themselves really shows how dramatically the situation has turned. Uh, Briefly to both of you, Scott, you first. Uh, A story I saw today where Steny Hoyer and others are responding a little bit to what what John was saying, too, about the the lack of availability for these uh, folks to testify publicly, that when we get to the public hearings, that many Democrats want to do it in prime time. They want to expose this to as many people as possible, and they don't want to do it here at 145. They want to do it at 730 at night mm-hmm. and try to try to get as many people as possible to see that. Is that a smart strategy? I think it is, and I agree with John based on what we heard yesterday uh, about Taylor's testimony, what we read about from him and his own words with his opening statement. Uh, you can see how that would be very powerful television. Yeah, and, for sure. Uh, I'm of an age where I can recall John Dean uh, testifying uh, at the the Nixon uh, hearing, and and it it had tremendous impact on uh, on that uh, on the country and on Republicans. That's absolutely right. right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, and so it it's uh, I think it would be in the best interest of Democrats to get as much of this out in the public as soon as possible. John, prime time is that the way to go? I don't think that uh, the witnesses would want that. My sense is. The networks don't want that as riveting as it might be. It's not a commercial event, but certainly the coverage is going to be wall-to-wall, and this might be a time where more Republicans ironically wish that it wasn't out there. I mean, here you have an ambassador who, as you mentioned, Chad, has had half a century of service to his country, went to West Point, fought with valor in Vietnam, and went on to serve, as all Foreign Service officers do, administrations of both parties and done so extraordinarily well, and was chosen by President Trump, who described what he called a highly irregular secondary system of diplomacy. And I think it's really key here to separate what we see in terms of the professionalism and the patriotism of foreign service officers and those who serve as envoys around the world, as opposed to, at times, political appointments. Because part of the charge is with Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, who was a political appointee, no diplomatic experience, was a hotel owner who had given a sizable contribution to the Trump inaugural fund. And Initially up, was adamantly against Donald Trump, then saw I was going to win and jumped on board. Absolutely. And so in a way, as has happened with both with administrations oh, of yeah. both parties, bought himself an ambassadorship, but he, they were running a rogue operation that no less a figure than John Bolton called, quote-unquote, a drug deal in John terms Bolton. of what was happening yeah. here. And, and we all know you know, how hawkish 
Mr. Bolton was when he was with the administration. So yep. he saw how completely out of line this was as well. So I think that this witness, as well as perhaps some others to come forward, will be quite damning and will solidify the public opinion polls that suggest that more and more Americans believe in, at minimum, the impeachment inquiry, if not removal from office itself. Uh, your Lindis Construction time check is 147. Time to call Lindis and see if your roof can withstand another Twin City winter. Are the Democrats ready to win this race, or are they looking for somebody else to jump on board? That topic when we come back. Plain Politics Star Tribune editorial board here. Scott Gillespie, John Rash, Star Tribune. John, a poll has just come out, the newest one for CNN, showing Joe Biden with his biggest lead in six months, a significant lead over Elizabeth Warren, I think by about 15 points. How and why is this happening with this one poll? Because despite all the media coverage, not that many people have actually watched the debates more than in previous sessions. But most people take a little bit of a snippet here or snippet there. And in general, he's been able to move through them and has improved since the first one. Those who watched the debates and who were polled had a lower opinion of Vice President Biden. But he has a reservoir of deep support throughout the entire party and the country, and in particular in some of the southern states where his support among African-American voters who make up a very sizable percentage of the Democratic base down there are four square behind him. And that's going to be his firewall, as it was with Secretary Clinton four years ago, which allowed her to best Bernie Sanders' insurgent campaign. So, you know, I think that the, the media has certainly found fault in many ways. Some voters have as well with Vice President Biden. I think it's a more formidable nomination candidate than he's given credit for. And I think once he's put in a uh, race against President Trump, then it becomes a binary choice. Certainly, I think the numbers will narrow, but I think he's a relatively strong general election candidate. Scott, just picking up on one of uh, John's points, the data is just overwhelming in what John just said. In non-whites, Joe Biden's lead is huge. And when Elizabeth Warren or Mayor Pete or Bernie Sanders are trying to pick up in that area, they're way behind. And, right. and that is an area where, yes, Hillary won that significantly over Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders, but her numbers didn't match up with Barack Obama right. in 08 and 012. And that's, that's something very essential that yeah. Biden has. And even with the gaffes and even the meandering, that support hasn't wavered at all. That, that's a very key part of his, uh, his candidacy for, for sure and value. The one other thing I'd add right now in terms of the – the boost he's got recently is I think the more Trump attacks him, that could help him. Uh, it elevates him some above the rest of the field in the eyes of Democrats. And that what's, that's what we're talking about here is yes. how are Democrats looking at this field. So uh, I'm not sure that it's, that it's hurt him. I think it may have actually helped him. Your point on, on African-American voters in particular, it's a, it's a key one. And, and they, you know, in, in some fairly large numbers in some states stayed home. Uh, in the last election, and Democrats can't have that again and win some of those swing states, including Wisconsin, Ohio, for example. All right, right, John, do we think any of these names, Mike Bloomberg, Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, or somebody else who's prominent who is not in the race at this point is waiting to see what's going to happen the next couple months and to emerge – try to catch fire 
and jump in this race because the Times had a long story about this, and they made a really good point, too, that it's almost for one side or the other, we have this event take place where it's either Republicans or Democrats are looking at their candidates unless it's an Obama or a W. Bush or Reagan or a Clinton, even Clinton, right? You're saying, God, these candidates aren't good enough. But in the end, it's really the group that's in there. What do you think? They're waiting, but their chances are waning. And if they don't get into it soon, one of these candidates is going to solidify his or her lead. And you have to remember that once these caucuses and primaries start, it's a really accelerated schedule. It's likely we will know the nominee by early March. So to be able to put together a campaign and not only convince voters that you are the right person to be the white knight to come in and rescue the party, but that there's something fundamentally wrong with people who have support, such as Senator Sanders and Warren or Vice President Biden, is a really uphill climb. And indeed, Mike Bloomberg, who is as good a numbers guy as anyone, looked at it early on and thought that he couldn't overcome Vice President Biden's lead and had early ruled out a third party bid because he didn't want to split the party and ensure the reelection of President Trump here. So it seems that this is a quadrennial exercise on the out party where they look Mm -hmm. for someone who isn't on the short list at this point. It certainly could happen, especially given, you know, these interesting times we're living through. (laughs) But I think it's, it's still basically a three-person race. Scott, I'd love to see it just for the story. Okay, the story, like, I don't think it's happened to myself. Uh, I don't think so either. I think we're, we're you know, just a little over three months away from the Iowa caucuses. I, I just I can't see that happening. Uh, at the same time, all these, these candidates are, are flawed uh, one way or the other. But we have to remember, too, that some of the talk about another candidate emerging is has come from, for example, a New York Times story where they were talking with big donors. There's actually some research, I think Pew Research has done some, that shows that Democratic voters kind of like, they kind of like this field. They're not as, you know, they're not as negative about this field as potentially the big money donors are. Mm -hmm. So in the bubble, there's maybe more of this talk and maybe out in the country where the real voters are, uh, they may, they may have candidates they're, they're pretty satisfied with. Gents, excellent stuff. Thanks so much. Thank you. The uh, gentlemen from the Star Tribune editorial board, Scott Gillespie and John Rash, playing politics. You can check this out as an example on Radio.com. You could hit the rewind right now and go back to the start of this conversation. This conversation will also be available to you, uh, StarTribune.com.